Hi there, and welcome to World Build, hosted by Alison and Nav, and brought to you by World Architecture News, or WAN as we call it. In today's episode, we speak to Dalton Ho, architect and senior sustainable building advisor at Perkins & Will San Francisco, and David Hurd, managing partner at Bureau Hapold in California. With more than seven years of experience managing projects pursuing sustainable design, Dalton is involved in a breadth of issues ranging from carbon and climate change initiatives to material health and social equity concerns. He co-leads Perkins & Will's internal embodied carbon working group of more than 50 members internationally and manages a diverse portfolio of projects to lead and well certification. David is the managing partner of Bureau Happold's California region and has significant experience in high-performance building design and sustainable master planning combined with strategic consulting in climate action planning, resilience and vulnerability planning. He recently led his team in the delivery of Santa Monica City Hall East, a highly sustainable net zero energy and net zero water building, which will be the first Living Building Challenge certified project for a municipality in California. And just a quick reminder, this year's WAN Awards and Win Awards are open for entries. They recognise the outstanding works of innovative and visionary architects and designers worldwide. As we're talking about sustainability today, we just wanted to highlight some new categories for the WAN Awards. So new for 2021, we have the sustainable energy use within a project, use of sustainable and environmentally friendly building materials, sustainable design and land use, and best overall sustainable architecture project categories. So welcome Dalton and David, a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. So I'd like, first of all, to go to Dalton to ask what sustainability in architecture means to you. How do you define it? Hi, Alison. Thank you so much for having us on. That's a great question. It's a very fully loaded question, I would say. To me, sustainability really, it covers everything. So, you know, from the environment to health and human health and wellness now to landscape and site. I think there are certain areas that get more focus for instance, I would say environmental health and potentially wellness get a lot of focus. But I do think that everything needs to be seen together as one cohesive challenge that we're facing. Otherwise, I don't think that we could say that we are successfully implementing sustainability in architecture if you're just addressing one or two items and not looking at everything as a whole. So there are many issues coming under the definition of sustainability. Can I bring you in, David, now to answer the same question? What does sustainability in architecture mean to you? I think it's it's really about the decision-making process in that you know, we've collectively learned a lot about how to design sustainable buildings and master plans over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Um, but now we're getting to a point where organizations, uh, countries, cities, are making very bold uh, targets and commitments. And so as we drive towards uh, targets like net zero carbon, for example, the need to really make the right decision, which is often a balance of life cycle and capital cost, means that the decision-making process for design teams and clients uh, becomes a lot more complex. And how you balance those decisions with the issues of health and wellness and, and social equity as well. 
Do you think there's an issue that companies are restricting what they can do to support sustainability because of the costs? Well, at this particular time, if you were trying to achieve a high level of sustainability, it's likely to cost you more capital cost. However, I think if you look at it in a broader sense of either um, a business commitment or business strategy, uh, or even how a country is looking to develop, it's sort of ultimately going to be a cost we have to bear collectively. And the sooner we can get into it, the less we're going to have to spend in the long term. So it's ultimately about getting it up to the top of the agenda in the decision-making process. And then I'm presuming if the right systems go in and they are sustainable, costs will, on a longer term, come down. Yeah, I mean, typically when you're using newer technology, it's a higher cost initially as it gets more adopted. And we've seen this in the use of you know, photovoltaic cells. Uh, the cost drops to the point where it becomes uh, commercially viable. To a certain extent, though, Time is not on our side, and therefore, you know, what we need is is older leadership, which I believe is coming through from sort of major players, the global players, to lead the way and the market for everyone else to sort of tuck in behind. Borough Happold published its global sustainability report in January. There are some quite outstanding targets listed there, such as reducing the company's operational carbon emissions by 21% by 2025. That's a mere four years away. There's also the aim to be net zero carbon from April 2021 by offsetting residual emissions as well as all new build projects to be designed for net zero carbon operation for 2030. This is clearly ambitious. Is it achievable? I think it's actually an easier question to ask after what we've been through for the last 12 months in that um, you know, the, the pandemic has actually sort of shown the way for businesses um, in how to reduce their carbon footprint you know, because you know, our, our goals were actually based on at some point us uh, getting to probably 40% of our um, employees working from home. Well, within a few months of setting these targets, we had 100% of our employees working from home. And so, you know, you see instantaneously the reduction in uh, carbon footprint, both in commuting, business travel, and office usage. So the sort of proof in the pudding has, has, has been created uh, and shown the way in, in how we can achieve these targets. So we've had effectively a real-time response uh, as a result of the pandemic, which has shown us the path um, on what we need to do with um, our own carbon emission goals. And I think regarding the second point about the new you know, building projects to be net zero carbon by 2030, there again, that's, that's very much about you know, working with our clients to see how we can, how they can achieve those goals, and ultimately, you know, it may be that we have to start being more selective on who we work with to make sure we're working with people who are in line with these goals. And where would you say the impetus is coming from most strongly? Is it from your clients, or is it from companies that are designing the projects? I think both. I think uh, companies like ours. And um, you know, Perkins and Will, for example, you know, we've been leading the way in sustainable uh, design for for many years. But often the challenge is that you're you're changing the world one building at a time. And what we're now noticing is a real uptick in 
to a certain extent, corporate America um, stepping up and um, particularly starting to lead the world in setting very aggressive goals. And because of their size and influence, that will really start to shift the market. So I really, I do see clients really stepping up and taking the lead now. And are they stepping up because legislation is coming in over the horizon or is it more of a moral duty? What do you think is actually bringing about the pressure to make these changes? Um, there again, I think it's both. You know, I, uh, I did my first part of my career in the UK um, where legislation was driving change 20 years ago. And, and therefore, you know, Europe has typically been further ahead. Here, you know, I think you know, changes in the administration are certainly sending the right signals. But I, I, think, I think corporate America is also, along with many other institutions, seeing this as, as good business. That ultimately, if they're going to be seen to be world-leading businesses, then they need to address the issues of global sustainability. So I think there's as much moral uh, in that um, they feel it's a good thing, but it's also good business. Another commitment is a 50% reduction of embodied carbon intensity of all new buildings, major retrofits and infrastructure projects by 2030. What needs to change to make that happen? I mean, to me, this is probably the most eye-watering in that it's one thing dealing with the uh, operational carbon um, energy use, for example. But starting this really now focuses on the whole building. And in particular, again, coming back to the relationship with the architect, this is a lot about material selection and construction processes. And so we've uh, developed our own in-house um, life cycle and carbon assessment toolkit, which recently won an AIA Design Innovation Award. So as of the 1st of May, all of our new projects will have um, embodied carbon calculations done as part of the design process, uh, and it'll affect the decision-making process on which materials we use. I think also it'll start to push us quicker into the adoption of newer approaches to, to concrete, um, you know, greater increases in, in CLT usage and 3D printing and more sort of modular construction, everything associated with the construction process to reduce the um, embodied uh, carbon. You mentioned about corporate America leading the way. It's all very good for richer countries, the more developed countries to do this. But is it going to be divisive? Is it an operation where if you've got the money and the legislation and the will to do it, it's going to be easier than in countries that don't have the level of resources. Do you think that's a significant barrier here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, being the, the, the wealthiest country in the, in the world, it's important the US does lead the way. But how the US leads the way in conjunction with the rest of the world is going to be equally important particularly if we're going to move um, quickly enough. So I think ultimately, you know, how the U.S. can, can work more collaboratively with other developing countries is, is going to be integral to this. I, I definitely agree with David regarding sort of the rich countries or some of the more wealthy countries potentially leading the way. The good thing is that there are many ways of dressing sustainability or thinking about sustainable design that do not require 
you know, these fancy technologies or new innovative technologies that are really just looking at good design. Um, when we think about passive design strategies, I mean, these are really principles that we have been, or a lot of um, other cultures have been designing with without the need for active mechanical systems. They're designing really well insulated buildings with good natural daylight that don't require a ton of electricity. And we've been you know, building buildings and designing this way in the past. So it is something that we can go to as well. We don't, and it's a similar thing for um, even the building materials. We don't need highly advanced building insulation materials when we can potentially achieve the same thing with, you know, looking at straw and bale walls and insulation as, as, um, as a potential material as well. So I think there are ways that we can help or all countries can potentially look at sustainability and sustainable design. So Dalton, you mentioned passive house standards there. Just to move the conversation to accreditation, which is something we wanted to discuss with you. You are a lead AP. Can you tell us a bit about what this means? So being a lead Accredited professional, which is what the AP stands for, just means that essentially we've taken an exam regarding the LEED rating system. For those that are unfamiliar, LEED is, well, this is administered by the U.S. Green Building Council, although there are versions of LEED now internationally um, in Canada, India, several places in Asia as well, in Europe. Um, essentially, we've taken an ex- exam that shows that we understand how the lead rating system works and we are able to help to administer and certify buildings to the lead rating standard, whether it's new buildings, interiors, their existing building. The lead rating system is split into all of these different sectors. And you mentioned earlier that there's kind of these different sections of sustainability in different parts that get more attention than others. Do you think that with accreditation, there's maybe too many different types and some get more attention than others? <laughs> yeah, in you know, in many ways, it can definitely feel that way. I think LEED and in the US or North America and BRIAM over in Europe can seem like they, for a long time anyways, they were kind of the leading rating systems, third-party rating systems. And now with several other systems coming out, such as Well, International Living Futures, Living Building Challenge, and Living Community, it can seem like there's a lot more folks coming in that the market's getting a little bit saturated. But I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think for those that are in the industry, um, it just helps to really have teams kind of focus on what their project is um, targeting or what the goals of their of their project is. Not that, you know, not all components of the building are important, but certain projects would like to focus on health and wellness. So they might look at fit well or well rating systems and others are more focused on environmental performance or regeneration. And they would look at something like living building challenge, for example. And as we've mentioned before, you are a lead accredited professional. So to some extent, you may be biased, but is there one accreditation that you think stands out above the rest? (laughs) I 
Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think they all have their merits. I think I think Lead and Briam probably have the most name recognition. And for that reason, they do carry a lot of weight with certain clients in terms of marketability um, and what they see as, um, you know, the most prevalent and being able to help them to lease or sell a space. But I don't think from a sustainable design professional, those that are in the industry in architecture or design, any design industry would say that one is necessarily better than the other or one stands above the rest. I think it's fair to give uh, the USGBC and LEED the recognition for what they've achieved over the last 20 years and the, and the influence that LEED has had in uh, creating a greater understanding of how to design sustainable buildings. And, and that's an example of an accreditation that's continually evolving. Um, Unfortunately, you know, to a certain extent, Dalton is right in that you know, there are different certifications for what different parts of sustainability you're trying to achieve. I think the, you know, the Institute of Living Futures and the Living Building Challenge certification, which is the most um, progressive um, in the world, uh, certainly sets up for any client uh, some very ambitious goals uh, to to lead the decision making process in that you know for that certification you need to be net zero carbon uh, net zero water plus you have to be um, very selective on the use of materials you use as well so really it's a matter of you know what level of sustainability a client is trying to achieve or what scope. But all of these certifications are continually evolving and um, you're raising the bar. Uh, and, and that's really positive because it continues to pull everyone towards um, the, the ultimate goals. So I suppose, you know, to me, if you're being incredibly progressive, like the city of Santa Monica were with um, their building, you know, the Living Building Challenge really sets the, the, the goal, the bar high. Um, LEED, I think, is very appropriate for... Um, most clients, and there again has different levels of certification depending on how progressive you want to be. Um, the other one, which we haven't mentioned today, but I think is also important, is um, just certification, which focuses more on the actual organization itself and is around social equity. Um, because there again, I think it's important to be continually demonstrating, um, you know, overall our contribution to society. Um, the one final point I'd make actually is on, on the well certification, which Dalton also mentioned, which focuses on health and well-being of the space. And when you circle the, the conversation on sustainability right back to, well, is this going to cost more money or not? The, the piece of the conversation that's often left out is the people in that um, you, know, you can save carbon in operation uh, on a building, which might ultimately have you know, that's only affecting five, maybe six or seven percent of a business's costs. If you can, if you can make the people happier and healthier, uh, you retain them longer, um, and um, they're more um, productive in what they do. That's going to have a way bigger impact on the overall performance of the, your business and uh, how quickly those sustainable solutions pay back. So I think it's a matter of actually looking at it very holistically. And that's what we did in our office in LA. And we, we cut our, we improved our in 
retention by over 50% after we moved. Uh, and a lot of that we found was a tribute to, to the, the work we'd done in the design process. Thank you. And just to move on to an actual project that you've worked on with Perkins and Will, the Wonderharo building, San Francisco's first cross-laminated timber project. What made Perkins and Will decide to use cross-laminated timber for this design? I would say there's there are a whole host of factors, really. Uh, at Perkins and Will, we've had a long history of mass timber buildings with our studios along sort of the Pacific Northwest in North America. We've had challenges bringing some of those successes of other mass timber buildings down to California. So this is San Francisco, I would say is a little late to the party, but it's glad we're glad to see it really starting and there being a lot of interest. I would say we were very aligned with the owner on the very clear environmental benefits that CLT, glue lamb and mass timber provided for the building, which was a significant I mean, from the environmental standpoint, it was a significant in body carbon reduction. Other than that, you'll hear a lot of the benefits surrounding the speed of construction, the reduced amount of labor on site, design aesthetic. Um, There are structural considerations as well, such as the significantly reduced weight and the benefits that brings with that. And uh, we were... It was easy to see as San Francisco's first that there was a certain component of marketability and uniqueness uh, that this building brought that was also a huge, hugely important factor as well for choosing to go with mass timber. And while we're on the topic of timber, we have an exciting offer for you. As you know, entries for the 2021 Win Awards and WAN Awards are open and to celebrate the outstanding work that is being done around the world, we want to give you a chance to enter the awards at a discounted price. So the first 10 WAN entries and 10 WIN entries submitted using the code TIMBER10 will receive 10% off your early bird price. That's T-I-M-B-E-R-1-0 for 10% off the early bird price for your entry. And do you think we're going to start seeing more of these mass timber buildings in different countries and continents? I know that you said San Francisco was late to the party, but do you think this is something that we're going to see rolled out across the rest of the world as well? Yeah, I, I, I don't see why it shouldn't be. It's definitely being done in a lot of places uh, in a lot more of an advanced way than we are seeing in North America in, in many ways, Europe is leading the, the charge with uh, tall mass timber buildings and we are starting to catch up so from a logistical standpoint i don't see any reason why it shouldn't be the reason san francisco has been a little late and this might be a barrier for most is the sort of jurisdictional uh, hesitation to pursuing mass timber buildings there's been um maybe a this belief that they might not be as safe, that there's fire hazard involved with these tall mass timber buildings that just requires some additional handholding and education to these jurisdictions to show that these buildings can be safe, um, they can be successful, and in many ways they show a huge host of benefits um, to not only the, the design team and builders, but also to those you know, living in the buildings or working in these buildings as well. 
And to kind of put an end to that hesitation, what would you say to other architects, designers, developers to kind of take inspiration from this project to consider new and more sustainable materials? I, I think for designers and architects that have used this material, I, you know, it's not often you see a product in my mind anyways, and I once again, I might be biased that it's, it's so universally liked. And the great thing is it's not, it's not actually a new product. That's the beauty of it. It's, you know, wood is something we've been working with for centuries, if not, if not more. So it is a well understood product. It's, it's not new. It's something that we've, we understand the properties very well, and we're just able to use new processes to actually take advantage of it. Um, there are some old technologies here, such as, you know, nail laminated timber that we've been using for, for decades that are having a little bit of a renaissance and coming back in combination with new technologies, such as, you know, mass plywood panels that are taking new types of or engineering new types of mass timber products. Um, and as we spoke to earlier about the, you know, environmental benefits as well, there are significant in body carbon reductions uh, that can be seen if you use timber. Of course, we have to think about not all timber is procured equally. So there are considerations there to say, how are we procuring our timber to make sure that we're getting it from sustainably managed forests. Um, and then there's the benefits once you work with it regarding, um, you know, the precision shop manufacturing that makes it very easy to assemble on site with a very low labor requirement. Um, it's easy to on site modify in case anything needs to be changed since it's just, you can core things out. You can patch things up relatively easily. Yeah, there's, I, I, it could be a whole, a whole episode just on mass timber itself and the benefits, I think. Well, I'm not sure we have time to re-record a whole episode to make it just around that topic, but we can actually bring David into the conversation now. David, similarly to Perkins and Will, you and Bira Happold have been working on a, your own cross-laminated timber project, 201 Hampton Street, which is a new carbon-neutral cross-laminated timber residential building. Can you tell us a bit about this project and why you decided to use this material? Uh, sure. I mean, this actually came out of a collaboration with uh, John Klein, a research scientist at MIT, who approached us a few years ago about uh, working with him on uh, a research project with uh, cross-laminated timber. Um, that then led to a collaboration with uh, Place Taylor Design Build in Boston um, to develop this really as a as a, a blueprint for um, you know future neighborhood development, uh, zero emissions in in Boston. Um, and so uh, what's also been interesting is not just the combination of with um, uh, cross-laminated timber in the reduction of um, embodied carbon, but also constructing the project to passive house standards, uh, which therefore re re focuses on reducing the um, overall carbon footprint of the operation as well. We welcome your feedback on the podcast, so please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us. <laughs>